Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg. I'm Luke Hector and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. It's a mix of two themes today. First, MidCon 2015, my experiences and games played at a small game convention I was at just the other week. Following that, we talk about Christmas, and therefore, the best top 10 I can think of for this time of year is the top 10 small stocking stuffer games. What little games can you get that will fit in anybody's stocking? Hey folks, welcome to episode 38 of the Broken Meeple. I'm Luke Hector, your host, and the only host this time. There's no special guests on this occasion. That's not to say that they won't come back, but what I probably will do is reduce it down to maybe one guest at a time. Let me tell you that I have every sympathy for every podcast that edits itself with multiple people talking, especially when there's more than two people talking. I've never had such a hard time editing a podcast as I did with that Essen special. Three people talking, three tracks to link up, three different qualities of audio. Believe me, for a novice like myself, it is not easy. It took hours and hours to get that episode out, so I hope it was a good one because it's unlikely I'll get free of us again unless I seriously crank up my skills in audio editing or somebody shows me an easier way of doing it because, oh my god, it was pure hell editing that podcast. But, ah well, it's not all bad. It was still a fun episode to do and I enjoyed it and I will get other guests on at some point. But for now, what's been happening? Well, review-wise, if you look at the blog, there's been quite a few reviews going up since the start of November. We've had the expansion to Takenoko Chibis. Very good expansion. Check out the review for that. Abyss, the Kraken expansion from Essen also. I've reviewed that, and that's a very good expansion. The main crux of it works, but there's one element which I'm not as keen on. Check out the review for that one. I've also decided that I'm going to review all the Omniverse games that come out from Z-Man Games, with the exception of Erbion, that one doesn't get talked about much, but we're basically talking about Oniram, Sylvian, and Castellian. And the first one that I have done, Castellian, which is a recent release, is also on the blog. And then following that, we have the X-Wing Miniatures Starter Set review, and when I say the Starter Set, I mean the recent one that came out, The Force Awakens. I am a complete noob to the X-Wing Miniatures game, so this is not a comparison between the two Starter Sets or anything like that. This is basically, do you know anything about this game? No? Then read this review. And then two more, we have Blood Rage. Oh boy, this was a fun review to write. It's had a lot of attention and a lot of views. In fact, I think this is probably the most viewed article I've ever written on this blog to date. The hype for this game is insane, and you know what I like to do? I like to take the hype head on. So check out the review for that. It's a good one. In terms of the game, well, I'm not going to spoil my views. I think you're just going to have to go and read it. And then finally, as of today, there is also a review for the starter set or core set for the new Game of Thrones LCG 2nd Edition set. I've been getting into this game. I'm really enjoying it. Check out what I think on that review. So what else has been going on? Well, generally, I'm trying to get out of my current job at work. And I say trying, I've already succeeded. I've got a new job lined up with the Southern Co-op in... Portsmouth, their head office, and I'm basically making a giant switch from practice accountancy to industry accountancy. What does that mean? Well, basically, think of a practice as your typical accountants. It's one firm that has hundreds and hundreds of clients, and you basically do the same type of work for for lots of different people. It's very regulated, it's very old-fashioned, everything's on timesheets, everything's budgeted, it's very strict and regulated. Industry is basically working for one company and doing all the accountancy and tax functions within that one company. You have a bit more incentive to do really well and make the company succeed because after all, that's the company that's paying your paycheck. Now, I've got a new job lined up, as I said, and I'm going to be starting it hopefully in the next month or two. It depends because my old job currently won't give me a leaving date and it's rather frustrating. 
Oh well, no biggie. I at least have a Christmas dude to go to for the new work. They've even invited me to a team building workshop, so that's very nice of them. But that's basically the rough bit of my life, trying to work through the notice of this job I really don't like, and waiting for the time when I can start fresh and new and not have to commute for 45 minutes a day. I look forward to getting back on the bike and cycling to work and feeling refreshed and not to mention getting the stomach down a little bit further than I can at the gym. Other gaming, more gaming-related news, uh, a slightly amusing story is that some people might have noticed on Twitter the other night, this is the 21st of November, that I posted up a picture of a Takinoko game that I was playing, and I said, teaching my first date how to play Takinoko. Well, basically, I'm single, as you know, so I am dating. And I met a girl recently and we met up for the first time the last night and we met up at a bar and it was nice, we had a couple of drinks and we talked about a lot of geeky subjects, she is quite the geek. And we were talking about the board games and I'd already mentioned about them in the past and she said, oh, I'm really intrigued by that panda game that you mentioned, so I wanted to try that. So, rather stupidly I thought, I invited her to my flat so I could teach her to play Takinoko. I say stupid because surely most people would actually not want to go to a stranger's house that they've only just met, you know, we've only been chatting on text message before, and play games with them, but it's not necessarily play games, it's just going to a stranger's house in the first place. Don't people normally get a little bit, "Mm, I'm a little bit uncertain about that? I don't know, but we did. I invited her around. Place was half a tip, but thankfully she didn't mind. I did warn her in advance. And we sat down, had some more chat, and played a game of Takinoko. I taught her how to play it. I semi-deliberately didn't screw her over that much, even though she had to show me what sort of objective she was going for. And she beat me, but which was really good fun. But yeah, she really enjoyed it. She liked the whole expansion part of making panda babies. And I enjoyed having somebody new and enthusiastic to teach Takinoko too. I mean, this is one reason I love board games when I'm teaching to new people, just to watch the look on their face and the way they react to certain elements of the game. And she loved it and wants a rematch. So hopefully that will happen at some point soon. So that people did give me a little bit of shtick for having a Twitter page post when I was supposed to be on the first date. Now, trust me, she knew I was doing that. It's not like I was like not paying attention or anything, but, you know, I am a blogger. It's what I do. So, but it was quite amusing to get that little bit of sort of garbage from other people in terms of posting up a Twitter pitch when I'm supposed to be on the first date. So we'll see if that goes any further, but, you know, it was good fun and we'll see what happens. So this convention, MidCon, what's it all about? Well, MidCon is the brother or sister, I suppose it depends what your perspective is, to Manacon, where I went to in July. MidCon takes place in the middle of November each year in Derby, UK at the Hallmark Hotel. It's a convention where you basically go there for three days and you play games. Nothing else. There's one shop called Spirit Games who sell games to a discount. And there's a small second-hand store, which was not brilliant. I mean, a lot of people found some good deals, but I couldn't find a thing there. And I suspect that was just personal preference. And nobody wanted to buy my big Summoner Wars collection, which was a bit annoying. But there's plenty of games to be had. There's plenty of people to meet, including people who knew the show or who I just knew on Twitter. And it's just a social occasion for everybody to go there and play games solidly for three days and nights. It's a great laugh. I enjoyed it a lot. I will certainly be making a repeat visit to this as well as Manicom because I think so far they are the two best conventions for me to go to in terms of just playing games. That is, until I find some others that might beat it. We'll see. I am trying to go to as many conventions as I can and, well, be proud of me. I've done the UK Games Expo, I've done MidCon, I've done Manicon, and I've done the usual StabCon in Southampton and I've done Essen. So I'd say I'm doing pretty well this year. This will probably be the last convention I attend to for 2015, as we've only got December left. But we'll see what I can do in the space of 2016. If I can repeat the visits to all of these, I mean, I I will be going to Essen, and I will be going to the UK Games Expo, especially now, because apparently the Dice Tower have said they're going to turn up as well. So, yep, result. But I'll also go to Manicon and Midcon as well, providing nothing else is getting in the way. So, Midcon itself. Well... What I'm going to do in this episode is I'll talk a little bit about the experiences I had, but mainly I'm going to give a elongated first impression segment of 
games that I got to play for the first time. Obviously, I got to play some favourites, but mainly it was a case of playing a lot of games for the first time. And I'll touch on the Knizia-Fon, which was an event that was held on the Sunday that I managed to win. Quite how I won it, I have no idea. I think the dice gods must have been smiling on me that day. But I'll talk about that a little bit later. So, for now, I'm going to get started by talking about lots of different games. So, first up, first new game I played, and that would be the big, epic, Greek mythology game, Cyclades. I have wanted to play this for a long time. I've seen the Dice Tower talk about it, and a guy at my Portsmouth group constantly brings this to the table pretty much nearly every week, and plays a big five or six player game of it. The problem is, is that he brings the base game version of it, and from what I've heard, the expansions make the game a lot better. However, I have come to also discover that some people have mixed opinions about this. Well, somebody brought it to Midcon, and thankfully that was one that I wanted to jump into straight away, especially as I knew it was by Bruno Cafala and Ludovic Montblanc. Bruno has done some very great, very good games, and Ludovic's done some pretty good ones as well. Cyclades is basically an, an area control game where you are positioning units and, uh, like you know, soldiers and boats on the board as well as certain buildings, and you're trying to build free monuments. And the way that you do your turns is you have the different gods, particular Greek gods that you know, like Ares and Zeus and all that. And they are randomly positioned on the left side of the board, and people bid on which god they want. So you might, I'll bid two gold to use this god's power. And basically, when you use the god, you get certain abilities, you get the option to buy certain things like men or boats or special cards or things that help you to get monuments or summon special creatures, that kind of thing. And it's quite a cool little bidding system because basically if you get knocked off a god you have to put it somewhere else and then you might knock someone else off and then it all chain reacts and it all comes down to how much you're willing to bid so money is very important. Well this particular copy had both expansions or at least I don't know if there's more than two but certainly the two major expansions for this game being Hades and Titans. Hades pretty much adds the Hades god at the bottom, who ticks over until eventually he pops on the board and allows people to buy some zombie fighters and stuff like that. That one was okay, but it didn't really add that much to the game. We never bought the units that he had, it was just the fact that he replaced one of the gods so that we couldn't use them. So that was okay, it was a very minor expansion. The Titans, however, allowed you to summon these giant hulking men, you know, like, well, big giants, basically, on the board, and they could carry your troops around, it allowed you to move quicker on the board, and it also made combat a lot more viable, because you didn't have to spend ages trying to move across the board. Now, the Titans expansion, I favoured. I think the map was well designed for it. I think that the idea that combat is there, but you don't have to get into combat, is a good thing. And it just gave us more options. I have a feeling that if I was to play the base game, I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much, mainly because of the fact that combat was so much harder to do there. It seems that the game will play out very differently depending which version you have, whether you have the Titans version with a bit more combat, or the base game version with less combat. So it kind of depends on your own personal preference, really. I just think that Cyclades for me is going to be better with Titans. However, I will try the base game at some point at the Portsmouth Club, maybe, and see what it's like and compare the two. But certainly, I enjoyed this. We played a six-player game, two teams of three. It was all right to play in teams. I mean, you got a bit of discussion going, and it was good to have the team versus team aspect, and we did win quite considerably. I think I must have got two out of the three monuments by myself, uh, with basically monopolizing certain things like the boats and the priests, and then deciding, oh, someone's got the Acropolis over there, and he's mounting up a ton of money from corpses. Right, I'm going to go over there and nick his country. <laughs> so basically, I stole all the money. And at one point, I just had so much money, I basically bought the last monument from a random creature that I was able to summon. So it was all pretty good. I quite enjoyed it. It's not an auction mechanic. It's a bidding mechanic, which is what I, I'm fine with. I'm okay with bidding. It's the straight-up auctions that sometimes get to me. And yeah, 
I liked it. It was a good game. I think it was the second one I played at the convention because I started off with Blood Rage, but you can check out my review on the blog for the review of Blood Rage. This one was the first new game, Cyclades. I recommend people give it a try. Next up, we have Tiny Epic Galaxies. This is one of the, is it the third one, I believe, or third or fourth in the Tiny Epic series. Now, I've not usually been a fan of this series as it's come on with Tiny Epic Kingdoms and Tiny Epic Defenders because they basically just look like very basic, not very, you know, not great aesthetics, you know, little cube pushing games. It's basically trying to get the essence of what they're trying to mimic down to a short game. Now, I say short. I'm not entirely certain that's the case because my biggest problem with these is besides the fact that they're not very aesthetically pleasing and they're just basically little tiny cube pushers, it's the same sort of problem I had with 8 Minute Empire, they're not very tiny in terms of length anyway. Playing time says 30 minutes, I guarantee you it will take usually at least half if not twice as long as that. It's basically that you'll have everybody trying to do actions on their turns it takes a while before anybody gets to the victory condition particularly with four of us and people will hit analysis paralysis and it just seems to take too long for what it is but basically you've got all these planets along the middle of the board and you have dice that you will throw in order to do certain actions on those dice now you've got two resources, culture and energy, and you will basically utilize both of those to upgrade your base, which is one way of getting victory points as well as more dice and more abilities to do stuff. And you will send your ships onto the various planets to either trigger the ability of that planet or to slowly progress and colonize it so that you get the planet for yourself and gain victory points. First person to a certain amount wins. Now, whether you want to use the ability or not depends, and if you decide to colonize the planet, you have to put your ship on a little track that varies in length, and then roll the symbols on the dice that match that planet in order to progress it up slowly, and of course, other people might beat you to it. I have to admit, for a small, tiny little game, it does distill a lot of the whole space exploration thing quite well, even though the exploration thing is basically just, here's a car with a planet on it, there's only so much you're doing. My biggest problem with this, though, is two things. One, it doesn't; it takes far too long for what it is, especially with the analysis paralysis. And secondly, the two resources, energy and culture. I don't think it's possible to physically win this game if you don't take culture, and certainly if you don't take a lot of culture. And whether that may be true or not, you certainly won't enjoy the game very much unless you take culture. Because what culture allows you to do is you can not only use it to upgrade your base and uh, go on certain planets and that, but you can also use it to trigger an extra action on someone else's turn, mimicking whatever they've just rolled on the dice. Now the problem with this is that it means that people roll the dice and have to constantly ask, is anyone mimicking this action? Anyone using culture? No? Good. Right, move on. You know, constantly. And if you go too far forward, then people go, oh wait, I wanted to copy that action, and then it goes out of sync, and it just throws everything off. It gets very fiddly having to deal with that. Secondly, being able to do extra actions on other people's goes is very, very powerful. I mean, it is extremely powerful. You can mess up opponents, you can do some really janky stuff all over the place when you use that culture. And also, if you're using the culture a lot, it means you're doing a lot in the game. You're doing all these actions, and you get to be involved in other people's turns. If you don't have culture, you are basically sitting there waiting while everybody else triggers all these actions before it gets around to you, and then you'll get to do maybe a couple of things on your turn, and then that's about it. So I don't know if it is exactly balanced. I certainly seem to think that culture is far more powerful, if not far more enjoyable, than just grabbing energy. Uh, grabbing a mix of both is not a terrible idea. It tends to work quite well. However, there's only so much you can really do with only a little bit of culture. You really want to have a lot of it. And I don't know, it it didn't wow me as much as seem, some people seem to think of this. I mean, you either love it or hate it with this tiny epic series. It's very much a Marmite series. And for me, well, I don't necessarily hate the series. I mean, I think that's a bit of a bold claim. Maybe maybe Marmite's the wrong word. Maybe it's more peanuts. You know, peanut flavouring or something. I don't know. You know, I don't like eating peanuts, but I can eat satay chicken. You know, that kind of thing. But 
yeah, it's it's not the best series in my opinion, and certainly I don't think I'm going to be seeking this one out. You know, it it's okay, but it just didn't wow me as much. But it was all right. It killed an hour or however long it took. I mean, sixty to it was certainly between sixty and eighty minutes. I seem to think, and I know it's a convention, things take slightly longer, but yeah, it still wasn't exactly the shortest game in the world. So, tiny epic galaxies. Next up, we have a recent Essen release, New York 1901. We did this as a bit of a light break after playing things like Blood Rage, Cyclades, and Tiny Epic Galaxies. We kind of needed a light break, and so this was brought out by somebody there. In New York 1901, you are basically building skyscrapers across the various streets of New York. You have a load of building tiles from bronze, silver, and gold materials, or gold um, well, probably not gold materials, but basically gold standard. And you have a map which has the various streets and lots of random little squares all over the place that allow you to build these tiles. And they're all in different shapes, so you've got to, it's a bit of a spatial awareness type game. You've got to manage the space. And you can, you draw cards from this, these open cards that are there, and they basically tell you what tiles you're allowed to claim on the board so you might pick one up and it has like a rectangle with two green squares one might say red one might yellow and there's also a few random like bigger sections which are specified on the board but they've got roses like etched onto them and they're specific areas so they're quite in high demand and the idea is is that you will use these cards to effectively buy you know quote unquote the land and place your little worker there and then when you've got a worker there at some point you are allowed to build buildings on top of them as long as you own the various bits of land that the building's going to go on doesn't exactly have to match but you have to own every square that you're going to touch and then during the game as you level up in victory points you'll be able to access silver standard buildings and then gold standard buildings and you will be able to build bigger buildings you'll be able to demolish old ones and build bigger ones on top and it's kind of like refreshing victory points as you do so and there's a couple of objectives you can go for, like have the most skyscrapers across particular streets, or there's a, a special objective that everyone can go for, which is who's got the most bronze buildings, the most silver, the most gold, that kind of thing. And there's a few special buildings that you can build one of, which are basically giant buildings worth quite a lot of points, but you, they're obviously gold standard. The game itself is fairly simple. I think this is a fairly adequate gateway game in terms of its complexity. In terms of fun... That kind of varies. It's not the. It's not exactly brimming with fun. You are very much dictated by what cards come out of that deck, as to what you can really do. And it's certainly not a kind game. You are fighting for that space. People are going to nick your areas, and it's going to drive you nuts when somebody nicks that one little bit that stops you building the big building. As to what strategy works, well, I think all of them work. I'd say it's reasonably balanced. I mean, if you can build a lot of cheap buildings and then demolish and rebuild over them, then you're going to get a constant little supply of victory points. I think I tried to get to gold standard fairly quickly and build the biggest buildings, and that worked up to a point. I think I came second, but I did have a problem catching up to the leader, who I believe was able to just get a lot of little buildings out and just conveniently have a lot on particular roads. So he did pretty well, fair play. It's not one that I'm likely to go hunting out, and I skipped this one at Essen because I didn't think it really looked that great at the show. And that's not to say it's not aesthetically pleasing. The board is quite nice looking. It's got some interesting sort of like you know coloured decorations around the outside. It looks almost like it's kind of like 2D, but it's 3D, but not 3D. If that makes any sense, I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's like the illusion of the drawing, but you're basically looking at a flat map. But you can see like buildings standing tall in the, like the edges and that. It's kind of weird. It's kind of surreal. But the the cards are decent enough. You've got the tiles. They're very nice. I think there may be a deluxe version where you actually get buildings. I'm not entirely sure, but maybe I'm mistaken on that one. But it's okay. It's a light gateway game. It's basically just build buildings, demolish old ones, build new ones, get victory points at the end. There's not a huge amount else to it. So it certainly is a simple gateway game. If you're one of these people that really likes the whole managing your space and building stuff, then this might be a cool game for you. For me, it was average. It was an average game. It did alright. I didn't think it was bad. I think it was reasonably well designed. Maybe just a little bit too luck focused, but still there's some tactics you've got to employ and maybe you can go for a strategy or two. There's not a ton of paths to victory, but you can certainly pick a different one each game and see how it goes and after all it is a gateway game at the end of the day so 
New York 1901. If you're looking for a new gateway game, I say give it a shot and see what you think. For me, I'll play it, but I'm not exactly too fussed about owning it. And next up on the new list, we have Snowdonia. I might have played this once in the past. I think I did, but my memory of that time wasn't particularly great because we maxed out the player count and it went a bit slow. The person teaching us didn't really know all the rules and it kind of fell a little bit south as a result. This time, though, we had five of us again, so I was a little bit worried, but somebody there knew the game really well, like the back of their hand, and ooh, what a surprise, they won, but... Oh well, that's kind of what happens when a new per when you get taught a Euro game for the first time and someone knows it that really well. But it meant that the rules were easy to teach and we got stuck in. Snowdonia is based on the historical building of the railway that leads up to the top of Snowdonia in Wales. And the idea with this is that you ha it's a worker placement game and you have so many spaces on these various actions that allow you to get resources like iron or coal or uh, stone and you've got the ability to build train tracks, build train stations, clear up dirt, you know, effectively dig up the path so that you can actually lay the train track down. And you've got all these different contracts that you can get involved with, which get you victory points if you meet the conditions, but also a once per game action, which is quite cool. There's a lot of variety in those. And I think there's two really good things I like about this. One is that the train track is laid around the edge of the board by these various cards. You have the basic dirt cards, which have lots of dirt on them, and you have to clear them off before they reveal themselves, and you can build tracks on them. Then in between some of those, you have the station cards, which, again, you've got to clear the dirt off in order to build the stations, but you can build the stations using a multitude of different types of resources in order to gain the points on there, and they vary. Some people will fight for the biggest ones. Some people might just grab all the little ones when they can, and it's quite a cool little thing. What's really cool, though, is that the game ends when the train track is fully laid out across the edge of the board. So you don't know when the game's going to end. And you draw your resources out of a bag at the start of the turn. And these white event cubes will basically make almost like the government do stuff for you. So they might require maintenance on the trains. They might lay train tracks for you, in which case you don't get any points, but it speeds the game up. And the same goes for building stations and clearing up dirt. It's basically them intervening. And it's quite cool because then you really don't know when the game's going to end and it's just it's quite thematic in the way that you have to build the train track all the way to Snowdonia and rather than have it just be on the board as a static thing it's an ever-changing lineup of cards in each game. Granted some of the stations I think are always fixed unless you get the expansions but the victory points you get for building the train tracks on various cards in between that always varies. And the ability as to whether you can well sorry this is the second bit I like is the weather system. There is a weather system where, depending on what contract card is left on the top of the draw deck, it dictates whether it's going to be sunny, rainy, or foggy. These, re these weather effects affect the ability that you can lay train tracks down and dig up dirt. The sunnier it is, the more you can do. The rainier it is, the more wet it is, the less you can do. And if it's fog, you can't do them at all. And the cool thing is, is that there's these two little tracks from one to four move up and down based on the weather as to how many dirt cubes you remove with each dirt digging action and how many train tracks you can possibly lay down in one action be it one or two and that's really cool because you're trying to time it so that when you want to lay train tracks down or when you want to dig up dirt you want it to be the most efficient possible so timing's important a couple of aspects i don't like is the fact that you have the only way to get an extra worker is to buy a train and then you have to get a piece of coal and give it to the bag at the start of the turn in order to get the third worker from the pub as he's basically sitting at, which is quite cool. But I find that having that third worker is quite powerful. I mean, I played the game when I didn't use the third worker at all. And I came second, which is fair enough, but I had to work hard with those contract cards in order to get that second place. Whereas the person who came in first was using the third worker a lot, and it just happened to be that way. The second thing that's more of a minor nitpick, it's just the way the game is designed, and it is a minor nitpick, is that turn order means so much in this game. I mean, one of the problems I have with Power Grid is that people basically manipulate the turn order mechanic like nobody's business, and it just seems to dictate most of the game. In this one, it's a similar deal, because you don't have to go on the first space on any particular action. You could go on one of the others and have the action 
after or before someone else's. And so depending on when that happens may dictate whether you clear up particular bits of dirt at any particular time because if you reveal the last uh, section of dirt on a particular area you actually get victory points for doing so. And there's a few little like oh, curse you type moments when you are doing that. But that doesn't seem that fermentic to me. The fact that you can just sort of randomly dictate the turn order, well not randomly, but the fact that you dictate the turn order in such a way as to conveniently clear up the exact amount of cubes at a particular time. I don't know, I just find that a little bit weird. I would much rather that you had to go on the first square on any worker placement bit. So then you would sometimes hold back to see if anybody else went on it first and then there's a very there's a little bit of a push you luck in there. So I thought it would have worked better that way. But it's a minor nitpick and everybody's aware of this going in and of course, you know, that's part of the game. It's not that complex. There's a few rules to learn, but not particularly that much. I'd say this is about medium weight. It's not light. I don't think it would classify as a gateway game under any circumstances, but it's certainly not heavy. I think there are much heavier worker placement games than this. But I quite like it. I have a copy already, I've just not really been able to get it out to the table much, and it was handy to have someone teach it to me, so that was always quite useful. And to be fair, even though I have those minor nitpicks, I don't think it's a bad game at all. I think it's pretty good. It's a pre really good design. It's got some very cool mechanics with the whole weather system and all the different abilities on the train on the contract card, sorry, and the whole thing of building the track around the edge of the board I think is really cool as well. There's little mini expansions for it which I haven't tried, but I think they just change up what type of stations you've got. I don't think they do much else other than that. But this is a cool game and it went down very well. So Snowdonia. Okay, this is going to be a mix of discussion and first impressions because what happened on the Sunday was there was an event called the Knizia-Fon and basically it was the case that there was a ton of games designed by the, the venerable Reiner Knizia and you had to play all these different games uh, of your choice and you got points based on how heavy the game was, how many players were there and whether you won, lost, came second or third, whatever. The points were all totaled up at the end and the winner got some various signed games. Well, not to spoil it too... Alright, yeah, spoilers, I won it. I got first place, which if you know what my opinions are on most Knizia games, you're probably thinking, how on earth did he manage that? And to be fair, I'm kind of shocked by that myself. I was able to win the majority of the games I played. Not all of them. There was one I lost, and I'll get onto that in just a second. But I did win the rest. One of them, no, two of them were just pure luck games, so that didn't really count. I mean, luck is luck. Two of them were fairly heavy strategy games, though, so there was certainly some element to be proud of there. I believe I won a copy of High Society signed and a copy of Merchant signed, which was in a different language, but apparently I got the English rules sort of cellophane with it as well. Not played either of these two games. I've no idea if they're any good or not, but they're signed games. They're two new games, so I'm certainly going to try them at some point. So let's kickstart with the first game that I played and the one that I lost on the whole event, which was Battle Line. This one has been talked by Tom Vassell a lot, and it seems to be a highly regarded game on Board Game Geek, narrowly pipping some of my favourite games in the hundreds section of the Board Game Geek ranking list. I don't get what the appeal of this game is. I'm obviously missing something here, if it's that popular, because all I saw here was a glorified game of rummy, with some added bits. Basically, you've got a draw deck with four different coloured cards and the numbered 1 to 10 I think or is it 1 to 9 I don't know it's something like that and they've all got different names like you know Archer or Cavalry and that but to be honest this is Reiner Knizia it makes no difference what these are called basically just say it's four coloured suits numbered 1 to 10 and the idea is is that you have a hand of cards and you have these flags on the table uh, lined up next to each other and well I say flags they're pawns so I don't get why they're called flags and you play your cards in one at a time next to a particular flag in order to try and claim it. The idea is that certain combinations of cards and colors will build up formations and if your set if your formation is down and there's no way that your opponent could possibly beat it based on what cards have already been discarded in that you'll be able to claim that flag. If there's any chance it can be beaten, though, your cards are basically stuck there and nobody can claim the flag until somebody outright wins it with no chance of rebuttal. I just really don't get why this game's that enjoyable. I mean, for starters, there is no theme. 
it's called Battleline. It's got little pictures. They're not even. It's not even that great artwork. I mean, it's an oldish game, I think. And basically, you could play this with a deck of cards. You could just get a regular deck of cards, take the four suits, take out the court and the aces, and just go. Well, actually, no, you need the ace. Take out the court cards and just say, "Here you go, suits one to ten, go." Exactly the same game, no difference. All you'd need is a few pegs to basically be the flags. The other thing is that. I get that there's some element of tactics here, I suppose, depending on where you play the cards, but the vast majority of this game is just luck. Or at least it seemed that way. Because you'll put cards down and it'll be like, oh, I've got these cards, oh great, I'm drawing cards randomly for deck, not giving me the formations I want, you know, they're useless, and then you put the cards down and your opponent conveniently has something that's a better formation than yours and gets the flag, or you put the formation down like the best you can possibly do with your rubbish hand, and then they put another card down, and it's like, oh, can I claim the flag now? No, because there's a chance there may be this formation that I can beat it with. What, that requires one card out of the deck? Yep, but it's still possible. Okay, so even though I've built up the formation first... I can't claim it because there's a god knows what chance that out of that deck you're going to draw the card and beat it. Right. And it was just things like that. This game just did not appeal to me at all. It looks bland. It's boring. If there's an element of tactics in it, then it's not that high or I'm just missing it. I mean, some people have commented that I am just missing it. Which is fair enough. Maybe I need to play it a couple more times and see the light or something. I don't know, but... I'm certainly not going to seek it out. I mean, boring little card game as this. But if I want to try it out again, I'll just take out my regular deck of cards and do it rather than spend money on this game anyway. If anything, the pictures might look better. Um, I just didn't really see anything here. This was a game I lost. I think I lost it one flag to three or something. It was only a light two-player game, though, so it didn't really affect my scoring in the Knizia-Fon that much. But, yeah, just really? Rank 150? 37 or something, I can't remember, on Board Game Geek. This? Ugh, I don't know. Oh well, you can't always get a good game, and Rhino Knizia is not my favourite designer anyway. Sorry, it's just the way it is. I like theme. You'll get Some of your games are great, and we'll get onto some of those later, but, you know, this one, yeah, dud for me. Finally, I want to talk about Taj Mahal. Now, the first game I played with the Knizia-Fon was Battleline. Then I did a four-player game of Tigris and Euphrates, where I taught three new people, and granted, that gave me a slight advantage, but to be honest, I'd only played the game a few times beforehand, so that doesn't exactly make me a veteran of the game. But I was able to win that fairly convincingly, and despite getting beaten back in a few wars, that was still a good, really good fun game. And after that, we then tried Taj Mahal, which wasn't quite as strategic as Tigris and Euphrates, but it was certainly a bit of a thinky game. You still had to know exactly what you were doing. And my first impressions, well, I mean, I was a little bit afraid at first because I knew it was going to be, well, I was told that it was going to be auctions. Hmm. Okay. Now, auctions isn't really the best description I would use for this game. I would say that it's more of a kind of like a weird version of bidding because what happens is that you have these different regions on the board and there's routes that connect up various locations even though they're not really named or anything and you ideally you want to win commodities you want to win the right you want to like basically win the work I'm trying to think of the phrase. You want to win power with various advisors in order to put your palaces on this map in order to link them up and score more points. But what's the crux of the game? The crux of the game is that each round there will be certain amount of advisors to go for, of which collecting sets of these advisors will grant you various bonus cards. But you'll have a hand of cards, and they're fairly basic. They essentially have various symbols on them. They will either be a picture of the particular advisor, it might be a general, a dancing girl, a monk, or whatever else is supposed to be in this sort of Taj Mahal theme. Like I said, theme is pretty light. Or elephants. And the idea is, is that whoever goes first plays a card. And you look at the left-hand side of the card, and it will say whether you've got so many elephants or so many advisors of that color. The next person then decides whether he wants to stay in this bidding or he wants to opt out. If he opts out, he gets to pick up some cards from some that are laid out. So you might decide... You have to pick your battles. So you might decide to opt out early so you can get some cards ready for the next round. But if you stay in, you play a card. And the idea is, is that each person takes it in turn to play a card if they want to stay in, but as soon as you pull out, 
you will win either the advisor token or you will win the commodity token and put palaces down perhaps depending on whether you had the majority of symbols showing for that particular advisor or the elephants if you draw with anyone you don't get it and if you're losing in all of them well you just don't get anything but you still have to discard the cards that you use so it can get quite expensive and drawing cards is not as easy or frequent as you might think you might decide that there's nothing you particularly like in that region or commodity because collecting commodity sets again set collection gets you more points but you might decide, yeah, I don't really need anything there. I'm just going to boost up my cards ready for the region I really do want. And it's not about winning an auction or a bidding with loads of cards. It's about trying to win as many as you can with as little cards as you can. You have to play very tactically and you have to think, does the opponent have those cards? Have I seen them pick these up? And failing that, will they be going for the advisors that I want? So there's a bit of thinking in it, and it isn't an auction game, it's more of a weird version of bidding, and it is rinse repeat, so it can get a little bit beyond, you know, can overstay its welcome eventually. But I thought the game was alright. Not the best game I've ever played, obviously. It's a Knizia game with no theme, and it's just bidding. You know, if I want to have a shorter bidding game, I'd rather just play, you know, Biblios, or maybe some of the other, you know, smaller bidding games. This one I thought went on a little bit long. But I managed to win this one as well by basically munchkining all the advisors. I gave up on elephants, so I was like, hmm, most of my people will drive around in cars. We don't need elephants. And as a result, I was able to monopolize a lot of the advisors and get my palaces on the board. Eventually, I had this huge chain where I think seven of my regions had connections. And basically, the more regions you connect, the more points you get. So I had a massive train line version of Taj Mahal palaces all over the place and I was scoring a lot of points for doing so. Elephants, who cares? I let everybody else fight over those because you can't get everything. You won't have enough symbols. You've got to focus on something and so I focused on advisors. It worked quite well and it basically put me in good stead for winning the Knizia farm because after, even though I lost battle line, that was just a quick little two-player filler. You got more points for winning the big strategy games, and Taj Mahal and Tigris and Euphrates fit into that category. So it certainly put me in good stead. The luck games that I played afterwards, I'm not going to go into any detail here. It was Celtis and the uh, Decathlon game, which is basically chuck a ton of dice in various ways and see what happens. And they were just luck games or push your luck games, so they don't really count in, you know, I mean, anybody can win a luck game. You know, I just got lucky. That was all it was. So this one was a good one for me, Taj Mahal. It's an interesting little bidding, a twist on the bidding mechanic. It's probably not one I'm going to seek out again. It's just I enjoyed playing it there and I was glad I got to try it. Certainly I prefer Tigris and Euphrates. I think that's probably Knizia's best game to date. And probably the only, well, not counting the ones that I won in the... Uh, competition, the Knizia Fon, but I think it's the only Knizia game I've got. Tigris and Euphrates? I think it might be. I'll have to double check. But that was Taj Mahal. Anyway, that's enough talking about games I played at the convention. It's time to get on to the top 10. Okay, we're going to leave the midst of MidCon and go on to Christmas. It's Christmas. Well, okay, it's not Christmas yet. The Christmas season is almost upon us. I do not believe you have to start Christmas shopping or even going on about it when it's not December. Okay, yes, I'm digging myself into a hole there. Never mind. I need to get this podcast out and it seemed like a good time. I'm preparing you for the Christmas season. Put it that way. This is going to be my top 10 on stocking stuffer games. These are games that I think if anybody ever bothered to use stockings these days would naturally fit in a stocking for Christmas. Now, there are a couple of caveats with this. Firstly, they have to be small games, so they need to be able to fit inside a standard stocking. There is one game on my list that might maybe push that limit a little bit, but I reckon that most stockings could fit this. Maybe that you just wouldn't be able to put much else in the stocking, we'll have to see. And the other caveat is that I have tried to keep the price point at £15 or less, and believe me, that is a difficult price point to meet. There are some really, you know, really cheap games out there, but, well, you know, not all of them are any good, and probably a lot of them haven't played. But there was a lot of games I could think of that were small enough to fit into a stocking. My god, there wasn't that many that I could think of that were below £15. Now, this is £15 before delivery, so delivery is another thing. But, 
yeah, there was a lot of games I couldn't mention. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give out a few spoilers here. Citadels, too expensive. One Night Ultimate Werewolf, too expensive. Innovation, too expensive. Spyfall, uh, Jaipur. Uh, when else have we got? Uh, Seven Wonders Duel, Code Names. There was a lot of games that I had ideas for that just turned out to be too expensive. So those are completely out of the running. So what have I got left? Let's find out. My top 10 stocking stuffers. Number 10 is a classic gateway game. This is one of those little games that you buy someone who's never even heard of the term games or doesn't even feel that board games even exist. It's not no thanks though. That's what some of you are probably thinking. No, 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 this is another one which is kind of on that same popularity level as No Thanks, and it's perfect for anybody who's never seen a game before, and that's Sushi Go. Sushi Go is what you use to teach people drafting, because that's essentially all the game is. You have a load of cards with some cutesy sushi pictures on them, you collect certain sets and certain combinations to get more points, and you are just drafting these sushi items around the table, taking it in turns to choose a card, pass the set on, and see what you can end up with at the end of, I think, three rounds. Very simple, very quick, one of the ultimate easy gateway filler games. How can it not be on this list? Number 10, Sushi Go. I'm getting hungry. Number 9 is a game that actually might not be in my collection for much longer. So what's it doing on this list? Well, it does make a very good stocking stuffer and the game is still enjoyable. The only reason it might not be in my collection for much longer is mainly because it's a nightmare to get this game played at the moment. Just not enough people locally play it and I've got so many other games to do. That is the classic Dice Masters. Dice Masters, whether you like Marvel or DC or even Dungeons and Dragons or a very lesser extent Yu-Gi-Oh, there's plenty of vari variation here to get you hooked into this game. The game is very addictive, you've got all these custom dice, and yes it is technically a collectible game so the price points all goes up a bit, but you could buy a starter set for about 11-12 quid and just stick around with that for a while and then after that you could, I mean even if they've got Dice Masters already, you could still buy them a few boosters to fill up the price point and still be pretty good with that. But it's a classic dice game of beating up your opponent's team of superheroes and villains and or monsters or random Yu-Gi-Oh artifact boxes. I have to admit that set is a bit weird, but there's plenty of ones to get into. I would probably recommend Avengers vs. X-Men as a starting point, but if that's out of stock where you are, then the recently released Amazing Spider-Man is also quite a fairly good, you know, simplistic set to get into. But to be honest, it's whatever you fancy. Do you want superheroes? Do you want uh, anime? Or do you want Dungeons and Dragons? It's pretty much up to you. Still a cool game, it's a shame that I might have to get rid of it soon, but I'll happily play it when it's on the table, so Dice Masters number 9. Number 8 could almost be considered a learning game, or at least I find it effective as a learning game anyway, and that is Timeline. It doesn't matter which timeline you use. I mean, hell, you could use the timeline Marvel that I think is out and use it. Oh, is it Marvel or is it... Oh, no, there's a timeline... No, no, there's a cardline Marvel. No, I'm thinking of timeline Star Wars. But mainly, I'm thinking of the music and cinema, the historical discover, the historical events. Sorry, the science and discoveries, the inventions. I think that's the best one of the lot. And essentially, timeline is a nice little cheap card game where you are placing cards in the centre of this line of cards, and they all have a date on the back of them and you have to try and figure out where they slot in the timeline. You start off with one or two, and then as people get answers correct, they stay in the timeline, and obviously the longer the game goes, the harder it gets, because you've got more, less, well, less room to play around with. But this is a really good one to teaching you about, well, just most aspects of history, to be honest, and you don't get a lot of games like that especially not in a small package like this I find out that sorry I found out that I really know very little about when things were invented honestly I'm thinking oh yeah that'll be in the 1800s that'll be fine and then I find out it's like 300 years earlier and I tried this on a bunch of mates during a pub quiz I basically made it the history round where I gave them a set of cards and they had to put them in the right order and that was the lowest scoring round of the entire pub quiz Granted, it was probably a little bit biased because they had to get them in exactly the right order in order to score any points, so maybe that was a flaw on my part. 
But yeah, there was a lot of people who were getting really wild guesses as to where certain things were invented or discovered. So I and you can mix and match these as well. It's quite amusing having to figure out hmm, this was discovered then, but was it before that was invented and had Mozart wrote his symphony by then? You know, you can mix and match these to your heart's content, but even just getting one of them will last you a good fair while. I probably recommend getting two of them at least. That will give you a nice little mixture and a nice little bit of replayability. So, number eight, Timeline. Number seven is the first co-op game to make this list, and and it's not going to be the last one either. But co-op games for less than £15? What sort of ones are there? Well, this one is not only less than £15, it's less than a tenner. In fact, I think it's possible to pick this game up for something like £8. It's really that cheap. And it's one of the most unique games I've ever seen, where where you're used to picking up cards and looking at them, now you have to pick up the card and have it face away from you. So you don't know what's in your hand, but you know what in everyone else's. Yep, you've guessed it, it's Hanabi. Hanabi, don't worry too much about the theme. You're basically trying to get cards down in a certain order of multiple colours. But you're meant to be putting on a firework display. But this is a really innovative game where you know what's in everybody else's hand and they know what's in yours, but you don't know what's in yours. So you've got to give each other clues and there's only so many you can give before you have to start discarding cards and there's only so many of each number, so be careful what you discard. And it's a really nice way of getting into your friend's heads and trying to think, why has he told me that clue? Is it important? Was it just a safety measure? Or does he think I can play it right now? And you're doing this to everybody and you've got to work together. It's very hard to get the full 25 points in it. I do hear of people say that they get it fairly regularly. I would like to see video footage of this because otherwise I think you're lying. Trust me, the, the game is not easy to beat. Certainly, I bet that most people who have got 25 points have gone a little bit lenient on the whole rules of what you are allowed to communicate with each other, particularly in terms of gestures and winking. But, like I say, I'd like to see some video footage of someone getting 25 points. Maybe I'm just a bit of a skeptic. But, you know, I know how hard it is to get above 20 to 20 to 25 points, so I can't imagine that anybody is there getting 25 points really easily unless they're taking some sort of leniency with the rules. But, that's enough of that. Number seven, Hanabi. Cool little co-op and cheapest chips. Number six is Hive, but not the big Hive and certainly not the Hive Carbon because that would be above the price point. No, I'm thinking of Hive Pocket. It's still available, you can still find it in some shops, and it is less than £15. It is still the same as the normal Hive game, except the pieces are obviously a lot smaller, and they come in a bag, so it makes for a very good travel game. As if the original wasn't already pretty good for travel, this one's even better. So granted, yeah, it doesn't look as cool as the bigger version, just because the pieces are smaller, but this will be an ideal travel gift, and it's less than £15, so it meets the criteria. Hive itself is a really cool two-player abstract game. Almost gives you a kind of, almost a bit like a chess-style feeling. You have these tiles with various bugs and vermin creatures on them, and they all have rules for how they move around, and the idea is, is that you place them on the board, connecting up to each other with the intention of surrounding your opponent's queen bee tile. It's almost like a really warped version of chess, like I mentioned. You know, you're trying to you're not so you're trying to capture the opponent's bee in a sense. So think checkmating is essentially surrounding the bee. But obviously they're trying to do the same to you, and all the bugs have different rules as how they move. There's only so many of each. It's a really cool little game, looks cool when it's on the table, and the hive pocket version, it's cheap, and you could take it pretty much anywhere you want to on travels. I wonder if it would even be able to fit on an airplane table. Uh, maybe that's going a little bit far. I don't know. Somebody show me some photo evidence of that happening, and I'll prove it then. But for now, Hive Pocket, still a really cool two-player abstract game. Great stocking stuffer, number six. And number five is a small little card game that most people might not have even heard of. It features pixelated graphics and is one of the biggest games that advertises variety that you can get for something this cheap. Pixel Tactics is a great dueling game where you have a set of cards that have 
four different or is it no five different abilities per card depending on what position it is on the battlefield or whether it's in your hand or whether it's your leader that the opponent's trying to kill so you've got the leader ability you've got the vanguard at the front you've got the middle and you've got the rear guard one ability for each of those and you've got an ability when it's in your hand and played almost like a sorcery card if you're familiar with magic terms so five abilities per card there's at least 25 in each pack the pack is way below 15 quid you can get multiple packs you can even get little promo packs it's ridiculous the amount of variety you can get in this game and it's still a lot of fun it has you thinking tactically at every step of the way and it's certainly a bit of a brain burner at times you know it can lead to some analysis paralysis if you're not careful but that's just because there's so many options that you have and you have to outthink the opponent at all times it's a great little game pixel tactics number five Number four, and I think people would have probably had my head off if I hadn't put this on the list. But to be honest, I still enjoy this game as a really quick filler, regardless of which iteration you decide to put it in, because AEG are essentially milking the cash cow when it comes to this little filler game. Of course, did you really think it wouldn't make this list? Love letter, love letter, love letter. The ultimate five-minute filler game, well, depending on how many rounds you do, but cheap as chips i mean stupidly cheap this game it will fit in everybody's stocking it doesn't matter how small your feet are and it's still popular to this day regardless of whether you want the batman one the hobbit one the wedding one if you got lucky to get one of those or even the original japanese one or even just the original one that you can get in the american and english markets it's a cool little filler game it's difficult to really say much more about it most people have heard of love letter you draw a card and play a card simple rules simple abilities you've just got basically to eliminate the other players and try and end up with the highest ranking card by the end of a round rinse and repeat until somebody gets four rounds or a certain number of tokens depending on the iteration of the game it's really simple love letter classic stocking stuffer number four Number three was one hell of a surprise when I played it before, because this is a game using the mechanic I shouldn't like. Auctions? I don't normally like auctions, I can't stand Power Grid, but some games are starting to win me over with auctions if they use them well or if they're nice and quick and frantic. This is another one of those examples in a good little auction filler game called Biblios. I didn't even know of this game until Z Garcia mentioned it, and I've been, let's just say, his word on small games has actually been running quite true for me lately, particularly as I go through the Omniverse games at the moment in my reviews. But Biblios is a game of two halves. The first half is you are trying to acquire cards, and you do this by selecting so many off a deck, choosing one to keep, choosing one to auction later, and giving the opponents other cards. So naturally you want the best, you want the second best to auction later, and you want to give your opponents the rubbish ones. After that, once all the deck has run out, you then play the second half of the game, which is to auction off the pile that was set aside before using gold that you have in your hand and also using the cards which are basically well they they try to put a monk theme of collecting books but essentially it's different color sets you're discarding cards to get gold you're using gold to buy more cards the idea being that whoever has the highest value in a particular color set will win a certain number of points but the points will fluctuate during the game they start off at three points for each category but there are cards in the game that allow you to shift the points up and down from between one to six so that some become more valuable than others cool little filler game probably the best auction game i can think of in terms of playing it had to be quite high on this list considering how you know how much thinking and depth it's got for a simple auction game below 15 pound and if you were wondering well hang on a minute where's for sale on this list well i got bored with for sale quite quickly so uh yeah spoiler alert it's not on the list even though technically it could fit the price point and would make a decent stocking stuffer if you like it so number three not for sale biblios Okay, this is the game where when I said that your stocking had to be a particular size, this is the one that might be just pushing the mark slightly. I mean, I've had stockings that would fit this game 
but these days I'm not sure maybe this will be the only thing that goes in the stocking or maybe you might just have to give them two stockings and then have this one fit one and then give them some other gifts in the other I don't know you might argue with me that this is a little bit pushing the limit but it's such a good gateway co-op game that I had to put it on the list and just hope that most people have got big feet and that is Forbidden Island note that I didn't mention Forbidden Desert Forbidden Desert would be too big I mean that would really be overstepping the mark but Forbidden Island is relatively small, relatively thin. I reckon it would fit in most stockings. And this is one of the best gateway co-op games you can get. Now, I'm not saying it's my favorite co-op game of all time, but if I want a gateway game that I can recommend to people who have barely seen games before, granted, I would rather play some of my other ones, like Flashpoint Fire Rescue, for example, but I can't say enough good about Forbidden Island as a great choice for people who have never seen games before and need to get into the co-op genre. It's dirt cheap, it looks nice, it's well produced for the price point, and it will last you a good long while while still being fairly challenging at times, particularly if you stick it on the higher difficulties. Great choice for a stocking stuffer if you want to try a co-op game, Forbidden Island, for those of you with big feet. Before we get to my number one, let's get some honourable mentions out of the way. Star Realms. Star Realms is a cool little two-player sci-fi deck building game that is cheap as chips to play. You can get one deck and it will cater for two players and it's a nice little easy deck building game where you acquire ships and various bases that have special powers and get you income and basically allow you to get more cards and you carry on until you reduce your opponent's life to zero. Very simple, very quick, very cheap Star Realms. Friday. Friday is a neat little solo game where you take on Robertson Crusoe on a desert island and again it's a nice little deck builder game where you have to confront these various challenges using the cards that are in your starter deck and as you complete each challenge you take the card and put it in your deck to use for later. However, you have to pick your battles, you can't win every single fight and if you lose battles you'll lose life and you have to keep going through three different difficulty levels before eventually taking on two fairly hard solid pirate cards at the very end. A tricky solo game but very small, fits just below the £15 mark and it's worth it if you're a solo gamer. Friday. No thanks. Just as I mentioned that Sushi Go was one of the ultimate games to buy someone who has never even heard of the concept of games, No Thanks is another fairly equally solid choice. I just prefer Sushi Go to it. No Thanks is a very quick game. Take the card or put a token down. That's all the rules you need. Lowest point score wins and the chips are basically your lifeline to stop you picking up a card. But if you can get con basically sequential runs of the numbers then you only score the lowest card really quick you can teach it in a minute you can play it in five minutes very quick gateway game no thanks so by number one stocking stuffer of choice I'm picking a game that most of you I bet haven't heard of. It's a fairly recent card game that I've only just managed to get played lately in the last month, but I think this is a really solid deck building card game with a bit of a twist, and that is Valley of the Kings. Valley of the Kings or Valley of the Kings Afterlife doesn't really matter, although the Afterlife is more recent and has a solo mode in it, so maybe that would be the one of choice. But Valley of the Kings is your straight up normal deck builder game, except that all the cards are bought out of this little pyramid and you can only buy off the base and every time you buy a card the pyramid crumbles and refills so you have to do some tricksy stuff with the cards in order to get them. But each card has a money value for buying more cards and also a special ability and you, have to, you can only use the cards for one purpose during your turn so do I use it for money or do I use it for its cool ability? On top of that, you only score what's in your tomb because the theme is you are a pharaoh trying to collect loads of trinkets for his tomb for when he dies. Because the Egyptian law, folklore is essentially that they believe you can take what you have with you into the afterlife or in your next life. So naturally they kit out their tombs with all sorts of treasures and artifacts. Well that's essentially what you're doing here. You have to put items in your tomb in order to score points and it's essentially a giant set collection game. 
with deck building. But the twist is, is that once it's in your tomb, that's it. You can't get it out again. And if you put it in your tomb, that means you don't get its money value and you don't get its special ability. So how long before you hang, how long do you hang on to that card before you then realize I need to get it in my tomb? Because putting it in too early might mean that you lose this cool card to use. But if you don't get it in your tomb before the end of the game, then you don't get any points for it. No points for anything that isn't in your tomb. So how long do you hang on to it? And how big do you make your deck? Because the bigger your deck, the harder it is to pull out the really good cards. Or do you make your deck super thin so that you constantly draw those cards? Or does that reduce your options for trying to get stuff in a later game? Really cool, really nice twist on a traditional deck builder. I wouldn't necessarily call it a filler. It still takes a good 45 minutes to play the game, possibly an hour if you've got four of you. I recommend it more as a two or three player game personally, but it's a hit. It's a great stocking stuffer. It costs about 13, 14 pounds, so we're at the upper echelon of the price point, but it still fits and it's nice and small. And I know for a fact that if you buy both sets, then you can combine the sets together and all the cards fit into one box, providing you don't sleeve it, that is. Valley of the Kings, my number one. So that's it for this episode. Sorry that it came out a little bit late. It's been a very busy November for me and to be honest it's difficult to find the time these days in order to get the games reviewed and do the podcast. Don't worry that's not a profit of doom or anything. I'm still reviewing games. I'm still trying to get the minimum one a week thing going which seems to be working well. Sometimes two a week if I'm having a good week but maybe I might need to tone that to one a week in order to manage the time a bit more. But I'm certainly definitely doing a podcast each month. I hope maybe in the future to try and get guests on again. But sticking, of course, only to one guest at a time so that my editing is not completely nightmarish. But I've got good hopes for the future. I wish that I could move to a house and get some better acoustics and get some better equipment and maybe get back to video. Unfortunately, it's proving very difficult to get houses for a decent price these days. But I'm still looking, so hopefully that will come to fruition in 2016. I'm going to be attending more conventions in 2016, so I'll certainly be at the UK Games Expo, I'll be at Manicon, I'll be at Midcon, I'll be at Essen, and if there's any other good conventions I should know about, I think there's one called Sawcon or something like that. It's over in Basildon. I think I'll be giving that one a visit. That sounds pretty good, and it's a bit closer than the other ones have been, certainly. And, well, I hope to be seeing a lot of you and game with you in 2016. Stay tuned on my blog for 2015 because I will obviously be doing the top 10 of 2015 in the next episode. And because I'm a member of the Dice Tower Network, Tom Bassel has already got in touch with us to effectively say, right, we need all the segments for the special podcast episode that they do around Christmas time. And that will have me and other contributors saying a lot about 2015, our best game, our worst game, our best best artwork, a most disappointing game, a best surprise, the best components, the best children's, the best family, loads of categories and it's going to take me a while to record all those segments but I'm going to be doing every single one of them. Well, with maybe one exception, I'm not exactly the best person to comment on children's games, funny enough, being a single bachelor living alone. So I'm probably going to be giving the children's category a miss. I'm sure there's plenty of other contributors on the site who are in happy families and would be able to give you better advice there. So that's it for me. I better get on with editing this episode, not to mention I'm getting withdrawal symptoms from not opening up my recent additions to my Lord of the Rings card game. I've just got the Land of Shadow expansion along with a couple of other booster packs and I'm eager to try campaign mode for the Fellowship of the Ring movies at some point soon leading on to Helm's Deep where I still haven't managed to beat that quest and then eventually going on to fight Shelob where I will basically be scared to death of flipping over any card of the deck because of my arachnophobia joy oh well that's it for me take care enjoy gaming hope to see you at the end of 2015 and beyond I appreciate you taking the time to listen to The Broken Meeple. Thank you for your continued support. If you wish to check out more of my work, you can find my website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at The Broken Meeple, and also check out my Facebook page. The music used in this podcast has been kindly provided by CMA Music. I'm Luke Hector, you take care, and enjoy the hobby.